Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Clint Bolick, president of the Alliance for School Choice. Clint co-founded the Institute for Justice, a Washington, D.C.-based libertarian public interest law firm. He's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Clint has been involved in some of the most important Supreme Court decisions of the last decade. His books include Voucher Wars, Waging the Legal Battle Over School Choice, and Leviathan, The Growth of Local Government and the Erosion of Liberty. His newest book, David's Hammer, The Case for an Activist Judiciary, will be published in early 2007 by the Cato Institute. Clint, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, by defending judicial activism in this new book, David's Hammer, you've accomplished that rare feat of alienating scholars on the left and the right. Uh, What are they worried about, and why are they wrong? Well, of course, any time you see the left and the right getting together on something, it's important to hold on to your wallet. But uh, certainly, judicial activism is a universal pejorative today. No one supports judicial activism. So why do I? Uh, first of all, it's important to define what I mean by judicial activism. What I mean by judicial activism is a court that is willing to stand up against majoritarian tyranny and uphold the rights of the individual. And what I don't mean by judicial activism is courts engaging in uh, judicial legislation, or taking on the powers of the executive branch. I refer to that as judicial lawlessness, and it's a bad thing. But an active judiciary in defense of individual liberty is vital to the preservation of a free society. And that position is associated with some on the so-called right, uh, particularly some of those on the on the court. But in practice, uh, the people on the right worried about judicial activism want a different perspective than yours. They want well, – how would they describe it? I, I'm not, I'm not uh, as eloquent as you are on the well, – tell me, tell most, me how they're, they phrase that. Most people on the right, and I would certainly include myself in this camp, would uh, argue that they are advocates of original intent, that the Constitution ought to be enforced – as originally written and as originally intended. But some on the right go further than that. Robert Bork is probably the most extreme example. He has publicly called for an end to judicial review of the constitutionality of laws, basically saying that whatever the majority or the minority, for that matter, acting through democratic or bureaucratic processes ought to, uh, ought to hold, uh, hold and uh, the courts ought to just stay out of the legislative process altogether. What would they do then? Just close shop? I mean, what would be the purpose of the judiciary if they were not reviewing constitutionality of legislation? Simply to resolve disputes among individuals and to uh, adjudicate criminal proceedings. It would definitely be very different than the judiciary that we see today, and I think one that would unleash tyranny in both the legislative and executive branches, and for that matter, the bureaucratic branch of government as well. Well, I guess there was a day, very short-lived day, very brief day, 22-hour day, where um, legislators uh, took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and they themselves 
policed the constitutionality of legislation, they would presumably feel they were not upholding their oath if they didn't uh, if they voted in favor of a legislation that was unconstitutional. Uh, but those days are clearly over. Uh, but I guess it, during the, at the founding, uh, there was some question about what the actual role of the Supreme Court would be. Correct. That is correct. I think that the best argument for what the role of the judiciary ought to be was voiced by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, number seventy-eight. And he really set forth a very thorough explication of of what role the court would play. And it really is the court's role that it largely plays today as uh, the ultimate check against uh, the tyranny of the executive and legislative branches, and purely a negative check. That is, um, the court would exercise its power by voiding unconstitutional laws, but it would never actually exercise executive or legislative powers, which courts often do today. Uh, so Hamilton was foremost among the framers in setting forth the view of the judiciary, but Jefferson and Madison as well were very quick to say that it is essential to have an active uh, judiciary in order to check the powers and oppression of the other branches of government as well. In your book, you give the example of the fact that recent courts have struck down so many laws has given ammunition to some to argue that the courts have become more activist. But you argue that's not a correct interpretation, correct? That's right. Um, certainly the number of decisions striking down laws has grown in recent years, particularly during the Rehnquist Court. But the number of laws struck down pales in comparison to the increase in the number of laws and regulations that have been enacted. If you look at the growth of government as a whole, the growth in the legislative and executive branches um, and the number of laws and regulations passed have grown exponentially, whereas the number of judicial decisions striking down laws and regulations has not even even slightly <laughs> kept up with that. So everything is relative, and if anything, the court, in my view, ought to be far more aggressive in checking the powers of the other branches of government than it has been in, in uh, recent years. If the court has gone off the deep end, it is in being um, too deferential to the powers of the other branches of government and not sensitive enough to the constraints contained in the Constitution. Yeah, it's depressing to me how we have this romance about democracy. Uh, the founders certainly didn't have any romance about it, and um, indications are that romanticizing majority rule in particular is uh, the road to tyranny. Oh, you're absolutely right, and you're you're especially right that the framers were very cynical about government power. Madison, in particular, was extremely worried about the power of local governments, and he was extremely prescient in that regard, arguing that it's easier for a special interest, or in those days called a faction, to manipulate the levers of power at the local level than at the national level. And so this is one area where courts really need to be very, very uh, careful to protect constitutional liberties. A lot of times the individual is really powerless in the political process, 
And it's only in the court of law where the individual stands toe-to-toe and on a level playing field with the most powerful interests in the community. We could go back to the issue of the founding again just for a second. Then I want to turn to some examples of judicial activism. But uh, Marbury versus Madison, 1803, wasn't that a controversial decision in the sense that it, it expanded the powers of the Supreme Court beyond what the founders supposedly wanted, or am I misreading history there? Well, I think that Marbury versus Madison, which was the first time that the court asserted the power to strike down an act of the executive or the legislature, was totally consistent with the framers' understanding. If you look at the Federalist Number 78, uh, which was the, the, the principal argument used to ratify the judicial part of the, the Constitution and Marbury versus Madison. It's almost as if they they came out of the same pen. Um, so I think that Marbury was very consistent. What happened was you had Jefferson and Madison who, uh, as constitutional framers, were very insistent upon the power of the judiciary to strike down unconstitutional laws. But when they subsequently served as president, their view of the judiciary changed because suddenly it was a check on their excesses as president. And uh, so the historical revisionism was actually on the part of Jefferson and Madison. And uh, in this case, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall had the correct interpretation of judicial review. Uh, that's a comfort. And it's a lovely example of the role incentives play in uh, shaping our choices. Let, let's fast forward a couple hundred years uh, to the more closely to the present. So you, you, you mentioned a minute ago the important role that the judiciary plays in protecting the individual from the power of government. You've been involved in a number of cases uh, where you where such a, uh, a defense was made, and I'd like you to talk about those. Speaking of cases, we can start with the wine case. Uh, where you were involved in um, allowing individual freedom in, in growing and shipping and receiving wine across state borders. What were the economic and legal issues there? Well, the economic and legal issues were one and the same. Basically, um, a cartel of distributors um, was pushing for state legislation that would forbid the uh, the direct shipment of wine uh, across state lines to consumers. And this was exactly the sort of problem, this protectionist state legislation, that animated the Constitution in the first place, in particular the protection of interstate commerce. We probably wouldn't have had a, a Constitution if it were not for the very passionate desire to create a national economic union and to eradicate the power of the states to uh, create and maintain protectionist trade barriers. What happened, though, was with the abolition of prohibition, the states in the 21st Amendment were given the power to, uh, to regulate the sale and distribution of alcohol. And basically what the monopolists, what the states and, and the uh, and the liquor industry, the liquor distribution industry, were arguing was that the 21st Amendment canceled out the protection of free trade across state lines. 
And what the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately did, happily, by a five to four majority, and that seems to be the only way that I ever win cases in the Supreme Court, is by the barest of majorities. Hey, it's still a W. Exactly. Um, the majority said that these two constitutional provisions were both operative and that states do have broad regulatory power over alcohol, but to protect uh, health and safety and to, to guarantee against uh, minors' access to alcohol and so forth, that uh, the 21st Amendment did not empower the states to engage in economic protectionism. And so these laws were struck down. Uh, the flow of wine across state lines was allowed to proceed, and uh, a lot of consumers raised their wine glasses to a very important decision. But, you know, it, it, when you look at this decision, it has ramifications far beyond wine because as we move into the Internet era, a lot of the old uh, distributors, the middlemen, uh, are being put out of business. And once again, hundreds of years after the enactment of the Constitution, they're turning to their state legislatures for protectionist legislation in areas as far-ranging as uh, as uh, automobile sales and contact lenses. So uh, this was a, a tremendous blow for for internet commerce and for freedom of of uh, consumers to enjoy the uh, the products that abound in our society. Going back to the wine case in specific, the Twenty First Amendment gave the states the power to regulate, excuse me, took away power from the federal government in, in the alcohol business and, and left some power in the hands of the states. The Commerce Clause basically creates a single national market so that trade can go across state lines without tariffs or other types of barriers, taxes and other discriminatory barriers. So what what you're saying earlier is that states still have some power to regulate. They just can't discriminate in-state versus out-of-state suppliers. Is that correct? Is that, that is the upshot of the, of the decision? That is, in fact, the rule of law that the court articulated, that states are free to regulate alcohol, but they must do so with one set of rules rather than two. They cannot protect in-state distributors against competition from out-of-state wineries or distributors. So if you're worried about minors, um, you're, if you're worried about a 12-year-old ordering uh, a bottle of wine by um, by mail from uh, California and you're a New Yorker and you prohibit California wine sales in New York on the grounds that it's bad for 12-year-olds, an absurd um, worry in my opinion, but that was the claim that was made in the case, that kind of worry, you'd have to ban in-state mail shipments of, of of wine, correct? That's exactly right. And that's where New York, uh, which was the state whose laws I challenged, um, got itself in so much trouble because uh, it was insisting that um, kids would be ordering premium wine over the Internet with reckless abandon. Uh, Secretly using their parents' credit cards. Exactly, and being uh, being there without their parents when the delivery arrived and so mm -hmm. forth. I, I, I'm quipped at the time that if my 18-year-old son were able to navigate the system successfully, I would 
toast uh, his acumen over a good glass of wine because he'd be mature enough to enjoy it. But uh, uh, at the same time, there were absolutely no constraints on New York wineries whatsoever in terms of their distribution. So it just really blew a hole in their argument. And uh, we presented quite a bit of evidence showing that the real motivation was to protect the in-state delivery system. Do you have any feel for what's happened since that decision in terms of shipments across state lines and how state legislatures have responded uh, uh, in the in the state regulatory environment? Well, the um, the distributor industry, which is a multi-billion-dollar oligopoly, um, responded by trying to shut off direct shipping altogether, saying, "Oh, you want one set of rules? We'll make them as draconian as possible." But in a substantial number of states that had had discriminatory rules, in fact, the states have moved to ease them. So in states like Arizona and Virginia and Texas uh, and elsewhere, uh, and, and New York, <laughs> most notably, uh, where there were uh, severe restrictions, those restrictions have been removed. And uh, now the vast majority of Americans can freely order wine from their favorite wineries, wherever they might be in the United States. And that's clearly an important example, as you point out, that goes beyond wine. Uh, an even more, I think, central case of judicial activism that you promoted and, for better or worse, lost at the Supreme Court was the Kelo case. Tell us about what happened there. Well, Kelo is known to most Americans as the outrageous decision in which the United States Supreme Court allowed the city of New London to seize the property of of, uh, of business owners and homeowners in order to give that property to developers to, to develop uh, various commercial enterprises that the city thought would be better for its economic base. Um, using the power of eminent domain. And, of course, traditionally eminent domain has been used and limited to um, uh, roads and schools and hospitals, all sorts of public uses. And, in fact, those are the words that appear in the United States Constitution. Um, public use, that is what eminent domain is supposed to be limited to. But over the to- over time, states and local governments in particular have expanded that definition to encompass public benefit. So anything that raises the property value of a particular area or tax revenues is perceived to be in the public benefit. And again, by a five to four vote, the courts uh, allowed that use of eminent domain, basically, basically writing out of the Constitution the important words public use and substituting their prefer, preferred words public benefit. That, to me, is, again, an exercise in judicial lawlessness. It would be an act of judicial activism to strike down this law, but that is the oath that justices take, is to uh, uphold the Constitution. And if the words public use appear in the Constitution, it is uh, it, it, it ought to be unlawful <laughs> for the court to ignore them, as as the courts often do, um, provisions in the Constitution. And if people feel strongly that it ought to be public benefit instead of public use, uh, they're free to 
try and change the Constitution, which the founders deliberately made difficult to do for all kinds of good reasons, but not not impossible. That's absolutely right. The burden is on those who want to amend the Constitution. But one mechanism that does not appear in the Constitution as a form of amending the Constitution is for the courts to rewrite it. Yeah, I noticed that myself. Uh, but I am an amateur in this area, as are many of our listeners, and it would be useful to us to hear from you how that five to four majority justified that decision um, upholding that right of eminent domain in that situation. For those of us who are not uh, close followers of the Supreme Court, who did not read the decision, we were kind of stunned. We just assumed that that was kind of uh, a layup. You're probably maybe you weren't stunned. You're probably more disappointed. But I, I'd like to hear how that. How that went, and how uh, how you thought it was going to turn out otherwise. Well, I uh, actually was disappointed, but I was not at all stunned. In fact, I was more surprised that four justices voted with us than that five justices voted against us. And the reason for that is that the court grounded its decision in precedent. This has been going on for well over 50 years, and essentially, we were asking the court to reverse course and to. Uh, and to honor the Constitution rather than its past precedent. But what happened is, as with so many liberties, particularly private property rights and economic liberties that have deteriorated over time, is that the New Deal Court began to eviscerate these protections um, when efforts were made to clear so-called slums so that public housing could be constructed, um, itself a, a dubious public policy. Um, and entire neighborhoods were obliterated. The New Deal Court um, held that that this was a public use. Um, and given that the property was being taken from one private owner and transferred to another, um, the court had to begin down the slippery slope of saying, "Hey, you know, public use means more than than literal public use. It can mean a, a compelling public benefit." And then over time, the court just continued down that slippery slope to a case in 1984, uh, appropriately enough, where the Supreme Court upheld the mass expropriation of property in Hawaii um, to take out of the hands of the current owners and to redistribute the property among others, um, uh, namely the the tenants. Um, It was probably the largest expropriation of of property in our nation's history. That was upheld by a unanimous Supreme Court with Justice O'Connor very much in the majority. So when Kelo went up, we were really asking the court to to ignore or at least to limit the effect of decades of precedent. And I'm, I'm delighted that we found four justices who were willing to do that, but not surprised that we couldn't get a fifth vote. And as a result, the um, the town of New London, Connecticut, was was allowed to expropriate property, and to my mind, uh, eviscerate a, a word you use, which I like, the rule of law, which basically is, among other things, in this in America, the opportunity to know what legal environment you're going to be in, and that when you purchase a property or an asset, you have a use for it and a plan for the future, and when that can be changed. On the whim of a legislature, it's a tough, um, it's not a healthy thing. That's absolutely right. My colleagues at the Institute for Justice who litigated the, the Kelo case um, 
uh, have documented literally thousands of examples of eminent domain abuse, uh, the transfer of private property through government uh, government action from one private owner to another, what we call reverse Robin Hood. Um, and it's, it's just a, a huge abuse of government power. And fortunately, as a result of the backlash against the Kelo decision, some state and local governments, uh, often through the initiative process, are beginning to curb the worst examples of eminent domain abuse. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't take, um, it shouldn't take that sort of action to enforce a limit that exists in the Constitution. Now, the political economy of it's been very interesting. Uh, you mentioned earlier the dangers of state-based um, uh, special interests or factions using the states or state legislatures as a way to advance their special interests, and that was a worry of the founders. And here's a case where I think a lot of Americans just didn't know this was going on, couldn't imagine it was actually happening, and the high-profile nature of this case uh, did sound something of a warning. That's absolutely right, and and that's one of the things that I like about constitutional cases is that they can be tremendous teaching vehicles. Um, a lot of times people don't realize that their rights that they think they have, like the right to earn an honest living, for example, really are not protected, and a, and a, a high-profile case dramatizing the effects of, of laws on people like Juanita Swedenberg, the small winery owner in the wine case, or uh, uh, Mrs. Kilo in the Kilo case can really uh, dramatize to Americans how much their rights have eroded over the years. Yeah, it's a, it is a, it's not a good thing. Uh, you've been an, a very active and um, successful defender of economic liberty. Uh, tell us about some of the cases you've been involved in where you protected that liberty on behalf of individuals. Well, um, economic liberty, the right to pursue a business or pro profession free from arbitrary government interference is certainly the right that most people, when they sail past the Statue of Liberty, if, if immigrants still do that these days, <laughs> um, think of when they, they think of American liberty. It's one of our most cherished freedoms, and yet the right to earn an honest living receives less judicial protection than the right to receive a welfare check. If the government tries to take away your welfare check today, you can tie the government up in knots with your legal services provided lawyer. But if the right, if the government decides, even for the most protectionist of, of reasons, to completely obliterate your profession or your business, you have virtually no recourse. And again, this dates back to the New Deal. Uh, prior to the New Deal, the courts uh, invoking the 14th Amendment, which was intended to protect economic liberty, um, were very aggressive in striking down laws that interfered with freedom of contract or that uh, created arbitrary impediments to economic liberty. But after the New Deal, the court uh, completely abandoned that searching review and adopted an anything-goes approach. Um, when I co-founded the Institute for Justice back in, in the early 90s, one of our goals was to restore economic liberty as a civil right. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of precedents that we could cite in doing that, but I took on a number of cases there that began to 
restore protection for economic liberty, starting literally at the ground level in Washington, D.C. in the late 1980s with a case involving street corner shoeshine stands. Uh, the District of Columbia, in its abundant wisdom, decided to forbid street corner shoeshine stands at the turn of the previous century um, when uh, when recently emancipated blacks were trying to find ways to support themselves, and the, and the government decided to uh, forbid street corner shoeshine stands, which were a popular entrepreneurial device that uh, that black entrepreneurs were using. And uh, my client was a guy named Ego Brown, who um, quit his job as a bureaucrat and began peddling shoeshine stands on the streets of Washington. And he even hired homeless people to um, learn his method of shoe shining, and he'd give them a tuxedo and put them to work lifting themselves by their own bootstraps. But the D.C. government shut him down. Based um, on that old... The old Jim Crow law, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, it was extremely perverse, but that's what they did. And, of course, any, as anyone who knows our nation's capital knows, uh, you can do almost anything on the streets of Washington, D.C. and get away with it. But uh, the D.C. government was not about to tolerate this sort of business enterprise. So they shut him down, and we filed a lawsuit challenging that law, arguing that it had no rational basis whatsoever, which is the standard that the court uses. And um, uh, in 1990, the federal district court struck down that law, saying that it had no rational basis whatsoever. And uh, Ego Brown was able to go back to work. Since that time, my colleagues at, at the Institute for Justice and I have taken on um, cosmetology licensing laws on behalf of African uh, hair braiders. Uh, we've taken on the funeral um, the casket cartel that um, that has been applied by uh, funeral homes, where you can only buy a casket from a licensed funeral home at a massive market markup. Um, we've challenged uh, taxicab uh, monopolies and uh, things of that nature, and our success rate has been pretty good, um, remarkably enough. But um, a case needs to go up to the United States Supreme Court at some point that would uh, get the court to uh, to to move away from the abdication of protecting economic liberties and toward greater judicial protection of economic liberties. We still have a very long way to go. What were the issues in that hair braiding case and the well, licensing? Because I think it's a very generally it's a general it's an important issue. Yeah, it was it was a very important issue, especially for the African American community. Um, African hairstyling has existed for thousands of years as a as an art form, and in every single state, um, several as of several years ago, it was uh, required that anyone having to do having anything to do with hair would have to get a cosmetology license. In most states, that required 1,600 hours of, of uh, training in a school that would teach people about everything from coloring hair to straightening hair to uh, doing fingernails to doing cosmetics and so forth. Everything that is except African hair braiding, which mm. wasn't even taught on the curriculum. And African hairstylists 
do not use chemicals in the hair. In fact, they believe that chemicals have destroyed black hair, and yet half of their training would in these schools would center on um, the use of chemicals in the hair. Then they would have to take tests that demonstrated proficiency in white hairstyling and no proficiency whatsoever in African hairstyling. So what happened was that African hairstylists were essentially outlaws. They would have to operate in the black market and uh, could not gain access to capital, could literally go to jail for doing this. It it was just insane. And so uh, we began taking on these laws and uh, failed in our first lawsuit in the District of Columbia, although the publicity from that uh, induced the government to deregulate the industry. Hmm. But we won our big first case in this area in California, and the, the laws were struck down. And then uh, California, for African hair braiders, replaced its 1,600-hour uh, requirements with a 16-hour requirement, showing uh, requiring uh, the braiders to show that they knew about basic sanitation and that sort of thing. That's exactly the sort of regulation that we should have, rather than uh, the, the regulations that are really designed to exclude competition and to standardize uh, practices in a way that that excludes a lot of competitors. There are so many uh, professions in our society that are heavily uh, regulated through occupational licensing, many of which are controlled by the profession itself, and none more pernicious than my own profession, (laughs) the legal cartel, which has the effect of dramatically inflating prices for legal services at the same time as it uh, limits paraprofessionals from uh, from doing things that they ought to be doing. Well, it's such a nice example of what Milton Friedman calls an unholy coalition and what Bruce Yandel at Clemson has called the bootleggers and Baptists that you have on one side a seemingly high-minded uh, advocate for a regulation, and then you have a self-interested advocate, and the high-minded advocate gives cover to the self-interested advocate to pursue self, self-interested expenses of, of people's either liberties or well-being. So it seems like a good idea to require people to know about a particular profession before they, they, they're they employed in it. But, of course, the way it turns out in practice is that the profession itself wants to restrict entry, keep wages high, and so most of, or maybe all, sometimes all, in this case the hair braiders, all of these regulations have no productive benefit other than to keep wages high. And it's deeply uh, it's deeply disturbing to me. It basically says to people, yeah, if you want your hair cut, you've got to go to the Mercedes-Benz of hair design. You can't choose to have a less expensive, less fancy, less educated, but perhaps just as good alternative. And it's... Um, I think we would do well to to get rid of a lot of those laws. Well, that that's exactly right. And a lot of people object to this type of litigation as um, as judicial activism, um, arguing that it ought to be the legislature that regulates these things. And at a certain level, that's true, uh, because certainly the legislature ought to make the rules um, that that govern our, govern our society. But at the same time, the legislature is prone to special interest influence. And so the role of the court is to separate the wheat from the chaff, to separate laws that are genuinely designed to promote public welfare from those that are really designed 
to serve special interests. And that's exactly the sort of sifting exercise that the court did in the cosmetology case. It did not rewrite the rules. It simply said, I've looked at all of the evidence, um, and I conclude that these laws are not reasonably related to the articulated governmental purpose. That is the sort of role that a court uniquely uh, and objectively can provide without any undue influence from from uh, self-interested groups. We talked earlier about about property and, and eminent domain. Have has the Institute for Justice Review been involved in any cases involving zoning? Not as yet, although there are a number of uh, initiatives around the country, including one that I'm involved in in Arizona, that uh, would give citizens important new tools in challenging zoning laws. Um, under the the, uh, the legal rubric of regulatory takings, and that is where the government doesn't actually physically take control of your property, but it limits your property rights so severely that it essentially has taken uh, a significant part of the value of your property rights. And uh, I think that the uses of zoning, for example, frequently now we see um, the governments wanting to have vast amounts of open space. And instead of, of buying property to achieve that, they simply pass a law that says no one can develop their property. Mm-hmm. And uh, that way the government doesn't have to pay for it, but uh, it gets the benefit that it wants rather than uh, uh, shouldering the, the cost across the community. It imposes it upon the single individual property owner. And uh, as these initiatives pass, and I, I suspect they will, Oregon was the first a few years ago to pass a restriction on regulatory takings, I think uh, I and other lawyers will be more involved in protecting people against um, unduly harsh zoning regulations. Uh, You're now working full-time for school choice. Uh, Tell us about what you're doing there and what are the prospects prospects for success there? Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I left the Institute for Justice uh, to work full-time in the school choice area. Uh, and uh, in 2007, I will be returning to the litigation vineyard, so this will be a, a three-year uh, hiatus from the courtroom. Um, but uh, what I'm doing is leading the uh, principal school choice national organization, trying to promote school choice programs around the country, giving, in particular, low-income kids a chance to opt out of abysmal uh public schools and use the state funds that are allocated for their education in private schools instead. And we've had some really substantial success Um, since the Supreme Court decision in 2002 that I was involved in upholding school choice in the U.S. Supreme Court. uh, There have been a number of new programs adopted in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere over the last two years uh, since the Alliance for School Choice has been up and running, we have passed 18 new or expanded school choice programs around the country, adding tens of thousands of kids who no longer have to go to the government school and, and can instead use their education funds at private schools. And what do you see as the long-term prospects for um, 
reducing the power of government schools. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I'm optimistic. Um, certainly, we are up against the most powerful and reactionary special interest group in the United States, and that's the, the teachers' unions. Uh, they control the Democratic Party at the national level, and they are the most influential player in many state legislatures around the country. So it's it's really tough going. And as Star Wars teaches us, the empire always strikes back. Whenever we pass a school choice program, there's litigation challenging it, and uh, there's always efforts to repeal it. So it's always it's two steps forward, one step backwards, and, and that uh, can be very frustrating. But over the long term, I think that the current monopoly system of public education is a dinosaur, and it is really threatened to to go the same way. Um, and I say that so optimistically, mainly because of technology. If we were constructing a system of public education today with all of the technology that we have at our disposal, we certainly would not create the sort of bricks-and-mortar hidebound, one-size-fits-all, command-and-control system of education that we have today. We would individualize it. We would tailor it to the specific needs of, of each student. And we see increasingly millions of kids in homeschooling. We see the rise of distance learning. We see um, kids learning on their computers so much, and schools becoming more um, a, a social outlet and uh, providing economies of scale, tutoring, extra help, and that sort of thing. That's the way we ought to be delivering education in the 21st century. And I, I really believe the move in that direction is inexorable. The unions will fight it as if their pathetic existence depends on fighting it, which it does. Um, but uh, in the end... I think that it is impossible to resist the, the power of technology to individualize education. Well, you made a strong claim a minute ago about the, the power of those unions. You said they control the Democratic Party. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that it is literally impossible for an advocate for school choice to be nominated for president um, by the Democratic Party. A few years ago, we had a vice presidential candidate, Joe Lieberman, who is a very strong school choice supporter, and he temporarily renounced his yeah, support for I school choice that. when he went on the ticket. But uh, Bill Clinton was a perfect example. When, when Clinton was governor of Arkansas and Wisconsin passed the first urban school choice program in Milwaukee, he sent a letter of congratulations to the legislator, Polly Williams, who advocated it. Um, and uh, then he became the nominee of the party and, and renounced school choice <laughs> as if it was the greatest evil on the face of the earth. About a third of the delegates to the Democratic Convention are school teachers and, and union members, um, and that is a very powerful thing to overcome. How did that happen? Do you know? That's a strange thing. I, that's, a, that's a fact that most Americans are unaware of it. How did that come to be? Well, um, I think it's the normal political dynamic of of looking to government to protect something that may not be protectable in the marketplace. Um, and 
Uh, certainly during the New Deal, unions became very attached to the Democratic Party. Teachers' unions have grown in, in power and influence as private sector unions have waned in their power and influence. Um, and when you've got a party that uh, that you can dominate, uh, it, it makes sense to, to flock to it, and that's exactly what the unions have done. The other thing about teachers' unions in particular, by definition, teachers are present in relatively equal numbers in every legislative district and every congressional district in the country because wherever you have population, you have schools. And as a result, it is those unions are uniquely uh, positioned to influence um, politics at both the very local level and the national level because they are so dispersed and, and concentrated. Uh, uh, they're, they're both dispersed and concentrated, uh, and that makes for a very powerful political combination. But they only do it because of the kids. Exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that is their great um, uh, defense, is that they're just trying to protect children from the skimming off the top or whatever is the the thing that they can scare people with about competition in the school system. It is, uh, it's remarkable how successful they've been. We have been successful, I think, in introducing some competition, but given how poor most school systems are, it's remarkable they've had any success at all. Well, we have, as a nation, a nostalgic attachment to public schools, and, and still, of course, the vast majority of Americans send their kids to, to public schools. I have traditionally sent my own kids to public schools. Um, but, uh, and so anytime someone stands up and says, this is bad for public schools, it's an alarm bell that people viscerally respond to. So the, the unions have been very, very effective at marketing this. Um, but I think as, as things get worse, especially in the inner cities, where four million kids are in chronically failing schools, that's schools that have failed their state standards, uh, the most basic, minimal state standards for at least six consecutive years, this situation is simply intolerable. And we're beginning to see courageous politicians, including Democrats like Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, who sits on our board of directors, uh, Anthony Williams, the mayor of Washington, D.C., and, uh, and others who are standing up and saying, listen, this is as close to genocide as we see in our society. We cannot tolerate schools that are uh, not going to give our kids the most basic skills they need to survive in America. And uh, we're beginning to make some serious progress. And your organization pushes for allowing students to take the public funds that would have been spent at the school in their neighborhood and instead direct them toward the schools they choose, uh, the private schools they choose. Do you worry? That, that's exactly right. Do, do you worry about the political um, uh, ramifications of too much success in that area? Uh, instead, might it not be better to work, ag- I'm going to be an idealist here, work against government schools entirely and um, work for, towards a, a system of, of private vouchers, not public vouchers, where private funds help kids who can't afford private schools, but we don't have the political dynamic where my worry is that once we politicize the, the voucher movement, 
we have an incentive for legislators to, to increase the size of the voucher and, and to continue to reduce the, um, the good side of competition? Well, um, we are working on both sides of that equation. Wherever the political opportunity exists for one or the other, we have uh, helped pass a number of of scholarship tax credit programs around the country, again, geared toward low-income kids. But the way these programs work, and we have them in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Florida, uh, and we just passed them in uh, Rhode Island and Iowa this last year, the way this uh, these programs work is they give a, a tax credit, a dollar-for-dollar tax credit, to taxpayers who are willing to donate uh, money to scholarship funds for other people's kids, um, specifically economically disadvantaged uh, families. And that is really a no-strings-attached kind of, of school choice program, and, and we, we think there's really tremendous potential for that. But certainly we also do very strongly support school vouchers. And, and with that, we accept the reality that the vast majority of kids in our society are going to be educated in public schools. And we see vouchers as a way of, first of all, getting kids out of failing schools and into good schools, but also as a way of creating systemic change within the public schools. And, and uh, I think that's probably the, the most uh, positive effect of school vouchers is it does introduce real competition and real accountability into the public school system. Um, Caroline Hoxby is a researcher at Harvard, and she has studied school voucher programs around the country, and she has found that very contra- contrary to what the teachers' unions say, in every single place where public schools have been faced with meaningful competition, the, improve- the public school performance has actually improved. And I guess Milton Friedman uh, has been vindicated. He would probably say that the rules of competition are not suspended at the doors of a schoolhouse, and he's certainly been proven to be correct. So at this point, Russ, you know, although I, I definitely see your point, I think that proceeding on two tracks with scholarship tax credits on the one hand and vouchers on the other, we're creating a dynamic educational marketplace in, in a country that desperately needs one. Well, Clint, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I, uh, I have to say I often discourage my students from going into law and attending law school, <clears throat> many of them do it because they think they're supposed to, uh, or they think mm-hmm. it, it's going to be uh, intellectually stimulating, and I think they're often disappointed. Yes. <laughs> um, at, at least what it's like to be a lawyer. They may some of them enjoy law school, but they don't always enjoy being a lawyer. But I have to say that your career uh, even makes this economist consider uh, the possibility of going to law school as a way to make the world a better place. You've really uh, Done a remarkable job, and it's. Uh, I'm glad to know you're returning to the uh, to the vineyards of of the court that you you mentioned earlier. My guest today has been Clint Bolick, president of the Alliance for School Choice. He's the author of the forthcoming book David's Hammer: The Case for an Activist Judiciary, and he's maybe the best single example of why you ought to go to law school. Now on to listener emails and a preview of next week's podcast. My guest next week will be Richard Thaler one of the pioneers in the area of economics known as behavioral economics. Richard will defend his concept of libertarian paternalism 
and try to convince me and you that it's okay for the government to act paternalistically as long as it's not coercive. Will he succeed in converting me at least? Find out next week. Meanwhile, on to your emails. Ken Willis writes, I hold Walter Williams in the highest possible regard so that if I disagree with something he says, I assume that I'm wrong. However, his assertion that slavery had become unprofitable by the time the Civil War started, and especially the statement by Russ Roberts that Robert Fogel and Stanley Engerman agreed in their book, Time on the Cross, needs to be corrected. It may be arguable whether slavery was profitable or whether it was economically moribund, but Fogel and Engerman wrote their book for the express intention of advancing the former proposition and debunking the latter. Their evidence is powerful as well as their citation of other authorities. Ken goes on to cite some of that evidence and closes with this argument. So was the Civil War fought over slavery? Maybe not for the North, but certainly it was the preservation of slavery that motivated Southern slaveholders. Maybe. When Ken wrote me, I went back and listened to the original podcast. I don't completely agree with how Ken characterized my discussion with Walter of Time on the Cross, but you can judge for yourself. Ken went to the trouble of transcribing the relevant section and posting it in the comments section of the Walter Williams podcast. So go check it out. Go to econtalk.org and see if you agree. In the meanwhile, Ken's certainly right that Fogel and Angerman found slavery to be financially viable. The important questions are these. Would slavery have died a natural death in the South without the, Civil, without the Civil War? How long would it have taken? These are issues I hope we can address in a future podcast. Listener Scott Wood writes in about the podcast with Skip Sauer on the economics of baseball. Skip and I discussed the issue of just how competitive professional sports teams are and sports leagues. Scott writes, on the revenue-sharing differences between the National Football League and Major League Baseball, could that possibly lead to a different class of owners in the NFL versus Major League Baseball? Revenue-sharing makes it realistically possible to win the Super Bowl from any of the 32 franchises, while the lack of revenue-sharing makes it very difficult to win the World Series from any team other than one of the Big Eight franchises. I'm thinking of the New York, Chicago, L.A. area franchises plus Boston and St. Louis. Scott continues, could the NFL's revenue sharing lead to a more inherently competitive class of owners? Is anyone going to buy the Royals for any reason other than milking the franchise? Can they attract owners who want to do anything but this? I clearly understand your observations about how the NFL is worse than Major League Baseball in a lot of competitive ways, but how confident as economists can we be in making that claim? After all, Costa won a Nobel Prize partly for pointing out that the firm exists precisely to trade off competition market competition in favor of other valuable organizational characteristics. Clearly, as you pointed out in the podcast, sports leagues are rife with tension between competitive goals. Thanks, Scott. Sports leagues are weird things. In some sense, the league is a single firm. After all, you can't just start your own baseball team. You need other teams to play against. The tension you're referring to is an interesting one. The owners share an interest in having the league be highly competitive, but they also want to win every year. That's why I argued that the owners might tolerate an individual owner who's a mediocre steward of his team's fortunes as long as it doesn't drag down the league's product too much. In the case of the NFL, the extreme revenue sharing mentioned by Skip, in contrast with Major League Baseball, where revenue sharing exists, but it's less extreme, that means that mediocre owners in the NFL can earn a pretty decent living. So even though any one owner has a pretty equal shot in the NFL, it's still a bit of a long shot. One out of 32. It can be very tempting to avoid that competition, have a mediocre team, and enjoy the revenues from the efforts of the owners who are trying harder and spending more money. It is a very strange set of incentives, and it's hard to characterize the competitiveness precisely. Well, I thank Ken Wellison and Scott Wood for their letters. 
I'd like to hear from you. If you have comments you'd like me to read on the air, please email me at a new email address. Here it comes, mail at econtalk.org, mail at econtalk.org. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Talk to you on Monday.